0: Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are and wherever you're watching from, whether you're watching us and joining us live or you're listening to the podcast, we're glad that you're here. Today, we've got another, as always, great episode. We're gonna be talking about learning science and some myths around learning. And if you're thinking, well, what does that have to do with video? We're not gonna talk specifically about video, but you can see the applications here because if you're doing learning creation, you're creating video for your customers or for your audience, it's, it's important to understand kind of how you start, people start to learn so you can optimize for that with whatever you're using, whatever the tool is. So with that said, let me introduce today's guest. Clark Quinn, PhD, provides learning experience design strategy to corporations, higher education, government, and not-for-profit organizations. An award-winning consultant, internationally known speaker, and author of six books, he integrates a deep understanding of thinking and learning with technology to improve organizational execution, innovation, and ultimately, performance. He learns out loud at Learnlets.com, tweets as quinnovator, and works on behalf of clients through Quinovation. And with that, let me welcome Clark Quinn to the Visual Lounge. Welcome, Clark. Hey, thanks, man. Good to see you. Good, good to see you. So glad that you're here. And you know, I, I have, uh, I'll just fanboy for a second. I have from afar watched you at conferences, and uh, honestly, been intimidated to talk to you. But, but here's what, here's what changed. I heard you say that you know you're like, I loved, I like talking to people, but I'm just not the type to go up to people, and that. That opened a door for me, so I was really grateful for that because (laughs) I I really have – I've gone to your sessions and I've learned a lot and uh, always appreciative of your insight and leadership in the, in the, the industry. So it's a real pleasure to have you with us today.
1: I appreciate that very much, Matt. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm a ham on stage. As soon as I get off stage, I'm an introvert. And it's like, will anybody talk to me? So <laughs> I always love it when people reach out and chat.
0: Yeah. So, so today, one of the reasons I, I wanted to have you on the show is because I think there's this whole world out there. You know, when I think about the people that might listen to this show, you know, they're probably making some kind of training or they're making visuals for a, a purpose, but there's a lot of things that are happening with, you know, learning that, we might get wrong, or we maybe are misunderstanding, or maybe we just don't know. And so where I want to start is, let's start with learning science. We'll we'll get to the myths, because those are fun, but we'll do those in in a little bit. So for those who maybe have never heard of learning science, what does that mean? Because I'm sure there's probably 12 definitions, but for you, what what would you tell us?
1: Well, to me, learning science is a scientific study of learning, um, which would seem obvious. But it's interesting that it was relatively recently sort of identified as a field, so there were a lot of people talking about thinking. There's the philosophers and the linguists and the neuroscientists and the psychologists, and finally they realized that they weren't talking to one another and they didn't know about each work. So they created something called the Cognitive Science Society, and this happened in the essentially the early '80s. After that, another group of people, you know. People affiliated with that recognized that there was a bunch of people looking at learning who have instructional design and educational psychologists and cognitive psychologists and artificial intelligence. And they said, we need to be talking to each other, too. So they followed the model of the cognitive science in the early 80s, uh, excuse me, the early 90s. They created sort of the learning science society and that while they're you know, learning science has been going on for decades, if not centuries, that was sort of a, a stake in the ground about saying we're going to. Cr- Look cross disciplinarily at learning. And that's to me what really learning science is. And it's following the paradigms of a number of different uh, component disciplines, but having that dialogue back and forth and saying, let's unpack learning. And of course, the applications of that to the design of instruction.
0: Yeah. So uh, it's interesting because as you're saying this, uh, one of the things that happened when I was just about to finish up grad school, so early 2000s, my school actually was building and starting a learning science department. You know, we had our like inst- instructional systems technology department, which was really focused on instructional design, education. You know, working with K twelve, also with business, and then they, that interdisciplinary kind of approach started to form. So that's that's super interesting. So we think about the the learning of science as what this is like. You know, how how all learning happens from a scientific approach. If I if I'm at home and I'm listening to this and I'm saying, well, why does that matter? I'm I'm in a workplace. Why does that matter to me? Uh, what, what might we say to, to say why this is important for businesses or for people in kind of professional field versus mm-hmm. academia?
1: Um, a couple important reasons in my mind. One of the – if we follow an instructional design paradigm, there isn't one that can account for all situations. And so when there's gaps between what they specify and we got to we should we do this or this? There may not be specific prescriptions – You have to make inferences. If you don't have a good basis to make those inferences, you can get them wrong. So that's one of the arguments is be able to fill in the gaps to connect and understand the what's going on behind this instructional design approach so I can adapt it to different situations. Another really important one is be able to resist a lot of the hype that goes on. People push a lot of ideas and products and paradigms that they want to sell you. And a lot of this is frankly snake oil <laughs> um, it really is just stuff they've made up and are flogging and there's no real basis for it, or the basis is fundamentally flawed or doesn't stand up to you know statistical analysis so there's a lot of stuff people are being told to do that once you understand how our brains actually process information and and turn that into learning you're able to resist a lot more so it it Gives you better basis, which saves you money, and then it keeps you from spending money on, you know, snake oil. So they're sound basis. And at the end of the day, what you create has a higher likelihood of having the impact you're trying to achieve. Uh, Part of this is also an awareness of we're not about just dumping information. That turns out, you know, the old model of the brain was that we're these formal logical reasoning beings. And therefore, if we give us new information, you know, bullet points and stuff, we'll change the way we behave. And it turns out that's just so wrong. (laughs) So um, you really need to understand learning science to be able to design instruction that's actually going to lead to a meaningful change. And you should be trying for that in your practices.
0: Yeah, well, well, that's I mean, that makes so much sense to me. And. I love that. You know, I've never changed because of bullet points. In fact, I probably resist the bullet point (laughs) changes because of the bullet points. So, you know, you mentioned these, you know, being able to learn how to make inferences because not any one model will cover all situations. And And I know there's a vast amount of information and we don't have time nor probably the energy to go through all the things that learning science has found. But from a high level, are there are there one to maybe three things that you found like these are really important starting points for someone to learn about learning science that will help them, you know, go and apply or, you know, be able to make better decisions about whatever they're creating. Uh, You know, are there key ones that like the, the field has said like, Hey, starting off, you need to know X and maybe Y. Mm -hmm. Well, there are a couple things.
1: So, I'm going to frame this. I'm going to give you two different lists and I'll explain them. The first one is sort of what do you really need to know? And I start uh, in my recent book on learning science. The, you know, the beside after the introduction, really the most important thing is that human information processing loop. So, we understand our brains operate at a neural level, but that's not a useful level for analysis or for prescriptions of instruction because the way you it's it's not you can't address individual neurons. You activate patterns in neurons. And the way you do that is through words and images. Therefore, that's the right level to be thinking about um, how do we activate learning. And that's at a cognitive level. So if you understand the human information processing loop, which is basically the cognitive explanation of how we think – You have a really good basis. It covers things like perception and immediate sensation, which is, of course, relevant to your video audience. Mm -hmm. Um, And then attention and what gets into working memory and how what from what working memory will get into long term memory. That's basically what learning is. And then the ability to use that, retrieving that from long term memory. And what do you automate? So understanding that core process, and then on top of that, understanding some of the fundamental emergent properties of that architecture. There are a lot of properties of that architecture, a subset of which are relevant to learning. And that takes me over to the other list. What are the sort of implications you should know? And the sort of top implications I think we miss. The first one is the importance of practice how important it is to do contextualized, meaningful application of the knowledge in the way you're going to need to apply it outside the learning experience. And we don't do that enough. We do a lot of knowledge test. You know, here's this stuff. Show me you can recite it back. Surely that's going to lead to you doing something differently. <laughs> no, you need to be applying that knowledge, making decisions, using it to solve problems. When you elaborate it in and pull it out in practice, and there's, Parameters around practice that matter, like the importance of spacing and the importance of variability and the importance of the right level of challenge. When you get a good practice, everything else follows from that really nicely. Another thing that I think we under, under misunderstand or under-understand, um, not the right word, but I, yeah. you it know works. what I mean. <laughs> yeah, mental models. The importance of having models to allow us to predict what's going to be the outcome of this decision and what's going to be the outcome of that decision so we can make better decisions. And I will, on my editorial soapbox, suggest that what's going to make a difference to your and your audience's organizations is not the ability to recite facts more accurately. It's going to be the ability to make better decisions, particularly in this increasingly volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous environments we're heading into and go already going through, um, the the ability to make better decisions. I'm going to suggest is going to be the important contributor to organizational success, and the ability to to create a basis for that comes from mental models which are causal, explanatory, uh, simplifications of the world that give us a basis to make those predictions and therefore those decisions. Um, so,
0: that's, wow, that's a that's a lot. Like, there's a lot to unpack in there, and I can you know I'm, I'm guessing. You have given us the very distilled version, <laughs> which is which is great though because it, it you know I, I love and I love that you split into two because I think the men, the the first one you know thinking about how the processes work starting to think about that there's a lot of structural things you can then start to think about and how information's delivered um, and I don't I'm gonna be honest I'm not a learning science expert I <laughs> I, I I've gone to your sessions I've tried to learn uh, but I'm not there yet I'm working on it but I, so I, so I really, I love that. And I, I love that you said thinking with w- what the words are in the images that help kind of convey that information makes a lot of sense. But then, you know, it makes me think when I'm creating stuff and I'm thinking of myself as a creator here, am I allowing you to, to, you know, am I just giving you information? Cause if we're just giving information, that's not really great. Right. That's what, what I heard. So we need mm-hmm. to allow opportunities for that practice. I'll, I'll allow that opportunity to get better. And the, and the decision-making is absolutely right. So so as you're, as I'm thinking about this, and I'm like, okay, Clark gave me the the five, five minute maybe overview. Mm-hmm. How how does one go about learning these things in a way that they can then apply it? Because I I, I worry that one we can talk about this at a high level and it's really great, sounds cool, mm-hmm. sounds like yep, that makes sense. But the challenge being for most of us as professionals is now, uh, I think sometimes there's that gap between like I learn stuff as a, a theory, like from theory like in grad school, right? now I've got to go and practice it. So what's the transfer look like to get to that point where you can understand this enough to actually be applying it in a way that makes sense and not going to be making maybe grave or faulty errors?
1: Yeah, I want to make one point of coming from what you said first and then uh, address that. You said, oh, it's, you know, you're only scratching the surface and it goes so much deeper. Yes, and there are a fairly finite set of things that if you get your mind around, you're going to greatly increase your ability to perform. So it's not like you have to understand all of neuro and cognitive science. We've got some pretty basic things. And that's you know what I wrote in the book and what I cover in, in workshops and things. And so the follow on answer to your question is the best way to, to really understand it is to experience it. And so what I've got in the book, what I do in workshops is you act I do the experiments and ask you to experience the phenomena that I'm talking about. And then I talk about what are the implications. And, you know, in a workshop, I try and draw it out of you. say, what does that therefore imply about design? But what you should do as a learner for anything you hear, learning science and everything else, is go, well, what would that mean I would do differently? So start exercising that knowledge, pulling it out and applying it in your context. And when you... And that's the lovely thing is when you're trying to apply it in your context, you go, oh, wait, that's when you stop and interrupt and go, hey, wait, I don't – clearly I don't understand this because I'm running into this mental thing. And that's how you start creating a learning dialogue. But so conversation is a really powerful communication mechanism as a way to negotiate understanding. But really, people have to be active in the learning. It's not like passive, yes, I can design – have you experienced a phenomenon to design some application exercise? And we do that. But also you have to be active in learning. That's where we get into the mental learning. How do you become a better learner knowing this stuff? By the way, that's a third benefit of this besides saving money and resisting snake oil is also to self-improve your own learning because once you understand it, you can optimize your learning experience. But that's it. You have to be an active learner, be applying it, thinking about the implications for yourself and then using that opportunity to go, oh, wait, that shows me I didn't really understand this because I can't answer that question. Now let me ask that question. Does that
0: help? Absolutely. And and the mental model kind of thinking about your own learning and uh, I'm trying to think of a better word, but I'm thinking like it's like a way to hack your learning, right? Like if you know (laughs) the process, you can start figuring out where to optimize and what to change. And so I think that's, that's really, really great. And I love that it's a dialogue process. It's a it's almost applying the thing that you just talked about, right? Like we're not just going to go and do it. We're going to practice and we're going to, we're going to learn through that practice and then develop. So I think that's, that's really an exciting concept. And I, I'm, I'm thinking about application for, for folks who might be listening to this typically using like Camtasia and Snagit and thinking like, okay, we often talk about getting better at those tools and learning those tools. And it's, the thing I always talk about is practice, right? You, you learn the tool through practice. So uh, I'm, I'm curious, Clark, you you talked about the snake oil stuff and I, and we're going to talk about myths, but I'm curious because I think a lot of people in the field of learning development, and there's this kind of bigger field and and there's probably people outside of that field listening, but there's, you know, when you talk about snake oil, what are the things that we're seeing that are are problematic? Because um, I think it's helpful to identify that so we can then, you know, Get, not not have to, you know, like worry about it.
1: There are a number of things people will try and sell you ways to simplify learners based upon learning styles or personality characteristics stuff. And a lot of these are proprietary and they're flawed. If you go back and look at the research on unpacks it, but there are also just a lot of myths about what's effective. You know, so there's Dale's Cone. We learn... You know, remember, ten percent of what we read, but ninety percent of what we do. It turns out that's not an accurate analysis. Yes, doing is more important than reading, but we don't have good numbers on it. It's so variable by pen- depending on what we're studying, and we'll hear things like, you know, oh, generations learn differently. There's no evidence of that. Um, and besides the generations, so there's just a lot of. Ideas promoted that don't have in the visual space. Oh, we look, process images 60,000 times faster than than words. A word is a visual, <laughs> 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 let's be clear. Um, you know, unless it's auditory, but <clears throat> that's a different modality and we're talking apples and oranges. Um, what was the other one I just read? Somebody was talking, oh, um, it was the 1090 thing, but this time it was text versus video. And while we'd like to believe that because we're, you know, your audience is largely involved in visual, there's just no data that supports that. It's a ridiculous claim. How do you know what claims are valid or not are an important outcome of having a basis in learning science and a little bit of understanding about how research is done and what's valid research and what's not. So um, I I, I really want to emphasize that there are a lot of things that we are being told and are continuing to be repeated that are just bunk (laughs) or to use a phrase malarkey um (laughs) whoa getting strong language you know i I,
0: and i you know it's interesting because i've had these conversations uh at TechSmith, even right like as we're going to because we want to promote obviously video and visuals it's i think it's a they are important modalities along with lots of other modalities you know uh But I remember having particularly like there was the goal attention uh, myth, right? Your attention, you have shorter attention than a goldfish, right? And I started doing the the, personally, and I think this is before I found your work, I was like uh, going back through the links and trying to figure out where did that come from? And it was just this web of circling around and never really definitive. And uh, so, but it's, it's a great point that there's lots of things that we get told and, and Maybe we need to be cautious about taking things you know, without a grain of salt. We need a grain of salt with it.
1: Well, it's interesting. The attention span of a goldfish, actually, it does go around in a circle, but it does end at a place at that you can identify, and then you can identify why it's bloody wrong. <laughs> um, so um, the, uh, the, uh, it turns out – so it was attributed to Microsoft Canada but it turns out it was actually microsoft marketing canada cuz microsoft canada you might say microsoft you know that and canada's just you know isn't going to be really fundamentally different but it was microsoft marketing and they had copied it from a company called statbrain that produces marketing data you know marketing statistic and hype they had gotten it from a study done in germany where they'd looked at how long people spent on a web page and then several years later they decided to go back and look and found out that people were spending less time on web pages and StatBrain, stupidly, went, oh, that means we're um, our attention span has dropped instead of going, well, are there any other explanations? Like maybe pages load faster. Maybe we have gotten several years better at interpreting whether a web page is worth paying attention to or not. All sorts of other things. So they and where they brought got the attention span of a goldfish. We don't know how to measure the attention span of a goldfish. We know they can remember things because when you come back to feed them, there they are at the top, going, "Oh, I see the hand coming, and I'm going to go up and get my food." <laughs> They've even taught goldfish to drive vehicles. That was just recently in the news in Israel. They created a special tank that had things that could detect the goldfish motion and would react steer on it and they by reinforcing the goldfish got them to drive to the end of a room you know as a goal so they have memory but we still don't know attention and attention's complex you know i would bet your audience most of your audience if not all of them have had the experience that being watching a movie or reading a novel or playing a computer game and surfacing going oh my where did this time go it was bloody more than eight seconds, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so th- there's a lot that goes into it, but that simplistic response is just not helpful. And uh, but yes, it, there are lots of ways you find different myths come from different origins or different beliefs, but they end up, you know. Uh, dying on the shoal of research
0: (laughs) yeah and i want to i want to keep talking about myths but a question came in that i before we get too far down the myth path uh i want to talk about uh, learning science uh one of our listeners christy he says what is a better what is better so it's given us some options here an approach where only the minimal information is provided for a task or learning gap or a more elaborate learning unit that also provides more possibly redundant context. So there's probably a lot in there without context. It's hard to answer, but.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, In general, the minimal information provided is best. Anything else can add to cognitive load. Now, that's not stuff that's automatically processed. So it turns out abstract problems We don't perform, we don't learn as well from, we don't transfer the information as well. So, making it contextualized, putting it in a real setting. So, we shouldn't just ask multiple choice questions that ask for recall. We should put it in the form of a little story that they have to respond to in choices of decisions. That so we can dress up that context with stuff that gets processed pretty much subconsciously, and so it's not interfering with our cognitive load. So we can set it in a bakery, and we can just have you know we could have the smell of bread, we could have the sight of loaves and ovens. We're going to process it without really adding to the cognitive load. But if we have a bunch of extraneous music, we have some images that are uh, you know decorations on the bakery wall that are we would have to process to understand why they had chosen that. That stuff can interfere. So you do want a context, but you don't want um, stuff that requires additional processing on top of the learning processing. Because you should be designing the challenge and the learning task to be difficult enough that they don't need any additional challenge. You know, how many of I'm sure you and your audience have seen? I like to ask this question in presentations: How many of you have seen a quiz question where the alternative to the right answer is so silly or obvious? That you didn't have to actually have learned anything to be able to get it right. Oh, everybody for sure. raises. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Their hand. No learning benefit to that at all. So put the challenge in the question. Put it in a context. Provide the minimal resources to to help them understand the context let them focus on the decision i hope that's a good answer for christy
0: yeah i i, I mean i think it's a good answer and it makes me think about i mean I, so you know i'm pulling back to my grad school days a long time ago but it makes me think of the one one of the theories i actually remember a lot about is uh, vygotsky uh zone proximal development right where you're looking to find basically there's a, too much there's too little and you're trying to find that that right spot and it sounds like what you're what if i'm understanding you clark is that in that case, you want to find the right spot, the right amount of information, not too much extra, but you're not also just paring it down to its absolute bare minimum where there's no real learning happening.
1: Well, actually, that's two different things in a sense. So okay. One is cognitive Great. load. So there's the intrinsic cognitive load of the task you're having them do. And there's the cognitive load of using the interface and stuff. And then anything else is extraneous cognitive load. And you only have so much cognitive resources. So you need to keep the the – Everything that's required to be processed within their capability, otherwise you overload it and gratuitous graphics. The desirable difficulty, remember I said that the challenge in the question should be right? That's that zone of proximal development. It's been known as desirable difficulty. Um, uh, I think that's Bjork or, um, did, I'm trying to remember what Anderson, uh, Eric Anderson called it, um, Ericsson, Anders Ericsson called it. Um, I'm getting his name wrong. But anyways, Erickson uh, talked about, you know, in peak, having the right challenge. And actually, so zone above is nice. And it actually turns out, if you look at Zickson Mahalia's flow, he has that same diagram. Too simple and it's boring. Too hard and it's frustrating. In between is this, this is the zone where you're in full engagement. The same thing with learning, with Vygotsky. If it's too simple, it's boring. If it's too hard, it's frustrating. In between is where learning happens. You get that alignment. Turns out, learning canon should be hard fun.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I love that, and uh, you know, I, I my my fifteen year old is learning guitar, uh, it, you know, and it's really interesting to see like when he progresses. And he hasn't been playing for very long, but like. It is hard, right? Like, but it's not so hard. The things he's trying to do, because that's just frustrating, and he stops. But when it's so easy, he's bored, and then he doesn't practice. So it's it's interesting to make that that correlation. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go into a few other things with uh, some of the the myths, because I'm, you know, you talk, we talked about a few of them from your perspective, and you know, just your opinion on this, like. What have these myths, you know, whether it's a goldfish or, well, you could big big one, learning styles, right? Like, we know that's, that's a problem one we could talk about. But, like, what impact do you think this actually has when these get perpetuated and tried to be enforced inside of learning and, you know, learning content creation, I guess? Right. Um, on the big picture, they, get, they can waste time.
1: We invest effort in accommodating these. And it doesn't help. So we've wasted additional resources on something we didn't need to spend it on. It can waste money in the same way, but it can also be damaging. It can undermine our learning effectiveness so we could actually decrease the impact of our intervention. But I think of something like learning styles. What we see, somebody will go, oh, I'm a X. I'm either, you know, I'm an NSFW, but they may say I'm an INTJ or an A. ESTP, whatever it is, or I'm a visual learner or I'm an auditory learner. As soon as they say that, they've closed themselves off. And it turns out under different contexts, we're m- more than one thing. Um, the MBTI stuff is debunked both fundamentally because uh, Jung just made that stuff up anyway. So he admits <laughs> it. Um, so there's not a good theoretical basis, but you're not a psychometrically Invalid as well, it doesn't pass all the tests for validity. When it's done independently, they claim, oh, our studies say this, but they won't publish them in peer. Oh, because it's proprietary. As soon as you hear proprietary be word, and there are better personality instruments that are open stud being done in by research scientists in open ways like ocean and now hexaco. Go look those up if you're really interested in personality psychology, but when you label yourself that way, you can close yourself. I'm a visual learner. Oh, this is auditory. I can't learn from it. You can't learn music, <laughs> visual. You, you really have to be auditory unless you're tone deaf like me, and you're just hopeless. Um, <laughs> but there are a lot of potential ways in which you could constrain yourself and, and limit yourself and not be open to all the different ways you could learn. And so not only is there a waste of time and money, but it actually can be harmful in that sense and others. And so I think the, the, to we need to be aware of the limitations of these things and avoid uh, wasting time and, and money the same way the categorization of generations oh millennials are like this and you know and boomers are like that. Uh, you know, our colleague Jane Bozarth goes, "I'm the oldest living millennial because you know she's technically sophisticated. I help my kids with tech problems. Um, they're in their 20s. I'm, they're supposed to be the experts, right? It's so much more individual and our brains like to categorize things. but it isn't always helpful. Sometimes these simplifications are on false basis and lead us down wrong you know tracks.
0: Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that because I know uh, again, just I've I've come in contact with the, some of these thinking, and I and it's difficult, right? Because I think we do, like you said, we do want to categorize, we do want to have options of saying that because it just the simplify. Like I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think our brains we like to simplify because it just makes things easier, right? It's less load, less taxing to understand. Well, this, you know, in a lot of ways, group this group this age group is like this, and I'm then which. You know it's probably categorically wrong because they're not. No, none of us are the same, right? Like we all. I, I look at my I, my oldest, who's in college, and he is he is not like a lot of his peers in that sense. Like he, he doesn't have social media. He doesn't. He barely uses his phone. Like so he's he's not like a typical kind of. I guess he's technically Gen Z. But but um, I'm curious from your perspective because I still do see some of these things, and I know you and many others have have been working uh to, to help to help share kind of the understanding of why these things aren't real but when when we see it you know someone says well i'm a i'm a visual learner i w- i mean gosh tech smith wishes that w- we wish that was true right like <laughs> we've got perfect tools for that but when someone says oh i'm a visual learner or, or someone's going to create a training i'm going to make this for the for the visual learners how can we gracefully because i don't want to be mean about it but how can we gracefully help point them in the right way um so that's what i tried to do so my book before my learning
1: science book was on myths and i tried to ignore i think the most important thing to do is first acknowledge the appeal you know yeah visuals can be engaging we have good visual architecture but it if you look in your experience there are certain things riding a bicycle wasn't so much visit you know visual um and yet you probably learned to do it and what so you first acknowledge it and then you sort of go, what are the – what I did in the book, what are some of the dangers of that view and what are the benefits of that view? So you, you, you're setting up – we understand both sides. If this is true, here's the benefit. If it's not true, here's the harm. And then you say, what does the research say? OK, you know. so you've acknowledged, you've, you've looked at the appeal, you've helped them recognize that there are two sides because it's easy to only think there's one side. Well, what would be the harm if we did that? We could prematurely limit ourselves. What would be the advantage? Well, we could design learning for different types of learning. And then you say, what does the research say? The research says that we can't reliably identify the different styles and there's no evidence that adapting to styles works. Now, there is, are benefits to doing things in multiple media. So there are benefits to having video and some pros, but it's not because of learning styles. It's because different types of learning goals and different types of content require different types of presentation. Video is a very flexible medium. So you can particularly capture dynamic context, which oftentimes is what people need. Um, But if you need dynamic concept, an animation is better than a video. And and now I'm being pedantic and separating out different types of video. I think, you know, an animation is not the same thing as watching you in video as I'm doing right now, right? Absolutely
0: Uh, agree. Absolutely agree. So
1: understanding the properties of the media and when they play a role is a much more powerful way to use media appropriately and then understand the power of mixing it up to support variety we know maintaining attention helps uh, engagement and learning. So do, having a variety is good, but trying specifically designed for different learning styles isn't useful and is a therefore a waste of resources instead of saying, how do we use the media appropriately to meet our learning goals?
0: Yeah. So well, I, I love that, right? Because you're not getting rid of the visuals. You're not saying don't use mm-hmm. video or don't use audio auditory means. You're, you're saying what is mm-hmm. appropriate for this and does it solve help us solve the problem and engage the person mm-hmm. to to keep them focused and learning? So okay. I I think that's that's great. I, well, that helps because I know there's <laughs> there, you know these myths are very sticky, right? Like there's I feel like there's good marketing. Like they've got good marketing. It's like some of the things you hear, like it's a jingle and it's an earworm and it just sticks. And you're like, oh gosh, I wish that wouldn't stick. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and they get perpetuated. And again, they have that appeal and our brains do are constantly running in the background. New cognitive research shows that our brains are continually making models to explain the world. So having somebody present us with a model that seems to be explanatory is very appealing. It just... And it seems to resonate with our personal experience. Oh, I really like that visual, you know, but and we may have preferences, but it turns out appealing to preferences doesn't lead to better outcomes. And that's the problem.
0: Yeah. Well, one other question. I want to – we're going to go – I'm going to shift back to just to kind of general learning mm-hmm. sciences. I'm curious because I know you're keeping your eyes on the, and kind of the pulse of what's going on. Is there anything exciting that's happening in the world of research right now that you think, man, this has really uh, some, maybe some implications for how we design or how we create learning experiences? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, yeah. To me, there's a few trends that I think are coming out of cognitive science and learning sciences. I think are gonna have interesting implications. One is the notion of distributed cognition. We have this notion that it's all in our head. And yet the work of Ed Hutchins with his book, Cognition in the Wild, talked about how we use external resources as part of our problem solving process. We use spreadsheets because we can't keep all these details in our head. And they combine the models and give us ability to do calculations. We use calculators. We use external tools like checklists and things. There are a lot of ways we support our thinking with tools. And when we recognize this, it allows us to start designing solutions for performance that says what can be in the world and what has to be in the head, and we can stop trying to put everything in the head, which is extremely hard to get things reliably out of our brain. And if we can put it in the world, and you look at Atul Gawande's checklist manifesto, so distributed cognition is one. The situated notion of cognition, the fact that we're very context dependent means we have to understand that and design our learning to provide appropriate context in our practice and examples that we can transfer appropriately to the situations they'll need to see in the outside world. Recognizing that we don't, once we formally understand it, we will formally apply it appropriately in all contexts, (laughs) bugwash, it just doesn't work that way. And so understanding (coughs) how much we're tied into the context and the importance of that for the design of our learning. One other one that is relatively new to me, and it came from Annie Murphy Paul's book, uh, The Extended Mind, was embodied cognition. How much our motion and, um, you know, we used to think of our sense five senses and touch was one. And yet it turns out that unpacks in some very interesting things. So there's the touch of external, but also the fact that you can close your nose and touch your finger close your eyes and touch your finger to your nose, close your nose and touch your finger to your eyes, Um, (laughs) means that there's some sort of internal system that you're using to do that. We call that proprioceptive learning. And we can use that as part of our cognition. And they're finding out that having people physically embody stuff, what uh, Dave Gray called game storming. So people are Mm -hmm. actually moving through processes and the importance of gesture in sporting learning, not that this, you've got to keep your hands in your pockets or at your sides, but the use of gestures actually increases learning. When we begin to understand these phenomena that are outgrowths of our cognitive architecture, we end up with better uh, tools in our repertoire, quivers in our, you know, arrows in our quiver to be able to design learning experiences that are going to be most effective.
0: Oh, that's, I mean, that's fascinating and uh, exciting to see all the things that were how we progressed. And it feels like, you know, in in the 20 years since, or so, since I was in a masters program in a theories, and a lot of I still see a lot of the fundamental things in place, but it's exciting to see that we're opening up to even more and learning so much more. It's it's an exciting time to be in the field of learning and development. That's for sure.
1: Hmm. Oh, it is. Um, and you know, it's not that difficult. I'm having this debate with my colleague Matt Richter from the Learning Development Accelerator about, you know, should we be helping people learn how to read the research in its original academies and journals, or should we be helping them find the translator? So, you know, what we do in that organization is we're trying to provide evidence-based programs, but not the pure research, but instead what are the implications I think finding the good translators of research is really important. There are some you should pay attention to, and some people would like you to pay attention to them that you really shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but when we see some, you know, there are a number of people who have reliably demonstrated the ability to give us good advice. You know, that's the Will Tallheimer and Patty Shank and Julie Dirksen and Connie Malamed and Jane Bozarth and the list goes on. But these are people who have, who read the stuff in the original academies have been trained to do that and have the practical real world experience to, to help you understand how to apply that, you know, and I hope I, I try to be in that coterie as well. Um, but, uh, I think it's important to, to see what those people are pointing to or saying, yes, this is good or no, this is bogus. And, 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 Check with them on anything somebody's trying to flog you. <laughs> what is their vested interest? And in? what do others say, including the people who've demonstrated a track record? If somebody's coming in and going, oh, learning styles. Is anybody saying to the alternate? And are they, do they have a vested interest? Yeah. I'd be asking yourself those questions.
0: <laughs> yeah. And uh, that list of individuals, I, I can, I, I have heard most of them speak in person. I've, I've gotten to know some of them uh, on a personal level and I can vouch that I think they're all, very good at what you call the translation process. And, you know, just for reference for this show, uh, if you want to hear Jane Bozar, she was on the show uh, uh, last month or so. She actually helped do mm-hmm. some research for us, uh, worked mm-hmm. with us on some research, and she is she is very knowledgeable on those things. So uh, we'll just give a shout out to Jane. Yeah. Because-
1: I have a tra- list of translators on my site. If you have a way to get links to people after this thing, I can get it to you and you can get it out to them. But it's just at Quinovation, there's a is a list of translators. I think it comes from the either the, either or both of the MISPIC book or the learning science book. If you look at the book page on the site, there's a link to the translators, and um, there's a few more than I mentioned. That, of course, my brain forgets in the heat of the moment.
0: <laughs> right, right. It,
1: it's a it's a pretty good list, I think. You know,
0: yeah. We'll we'll get that link from you. and We'll put it into the show notes for the podcast as well as on the links for the YouTube channel and, and elsewhere. So, um, excellent. You know, Clark, as we're kind of getting close to time here, and I want to be respectful of your time, I guess, as as you know, we've talked about some of the kind of future stuff, we've talked about the myths, we talked about, uh, you know, what learning sciences, I guess, from, we'll still do our speed round here in just a second. But I'm curious, kind of as a ending of the talking about the learning science directly, is there anything else you think that would help us to, to embrace learning science, to understand where where we can apply it. Just kind of last parting words about what we should know.
1: Well, I, I guess it's not going to be, uh, it's more an admonition and sorry to be so um, Puritan school marmish, um, but <laughs> it, it's a, in, in my mind, it's a professional obligation. Please. If we are supposed to be the people who design learning experiences for others, we bloody well ought to understand the learning just as you expect your plumber to understand the properties of pipes and your doctor to understand the properties of the body. We should understand learning if we're going to be res- doing this responsibly and not to a you know a learning scientist level. We don't expect you to go get a PhD in it, but we expect you to have enough of an understanding so that you can discriminate between useful investments And Snakewell.
0: A great admonition. I think a a super important one. And I, you know, going back to what you said too about like, you don't have to necessarily be the people to learn to read the academic. I I will say, as much as I love the translators as well, having at least a basic ability to at least look at it and start to gather some of the understanding and then then i it's like i love it's like using a language right like i go to the translator and say like, did i did i understand that right <laughs> <laughs> so i think that's i think it's a great admonition though and, and it's a, and a tough one right and it, I, I would say also that you know it's, it's like using if you're going to use a tool whatever tool whether it's microsoft powerpoint or word it's it's the same type of thing learn to use your the tools of your craft so that you can create the appropriate experiences and and same with the, the learning we're we're meshing those tools and the learning experiences together and you want to make sure that that's you know, mm. worth the time of the people because you're it's a lot of money to train people <laughs> it yeah. costs a lot yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah and you know it's great if you can read academic academies um the problem is there's so many journal articles published you want to find the best ones that are you know sort of the primary sources that everybody else cites. And the way you find those are from the translator. And yeah. a lot of, increasingly, we're seeing books that digest this down. So, you know, Medina's Brain Rules or Roderick McDaniels and Brown's Make It Stick. And so there are a lot of condensations becoming available that are also helpful. And just finding those that are, are translation condiments thinking fast and slow. A bit of a heavy read, but um, just because it's so voluminous, but it's very... Uh, Useful and in, in getting your mind around it. It's worth a skim.
0: I don't know. <laughs> Absolutely Absolutely. Well, yeah. we we all have some homework to do. We got some reading mm-hmm. to do. So go mm-hmm. look at the translators. Uh, before we wrap up today's show, though, we've we, we like to do what we call our speed round. Clark, we've already talked about this, but this is a <laughs> short, quick, fast answers. No pain. There's only one really hard question, and it's the same question we ask everybody. So it's not just you. So let's jump into our speed round. All right, Clark, first question for you. Uh, it's a yes, no question. Or, well, it's a short answer, and then it's going to be uh, – uh, yeah, we'll just go with it. Is there a myth that you wish was true, but it just isn't? And, and which one is that?
1: Actually, I wish the learning styles was true. I wish we could reliably identify the best learning approach for individual learners as opposed to for the individual learning. It would be really nice if it were there. It just doesn't – hasn't yet and I, you know, I have to carefully qualify it as a trained scientist, we haven't yet found any basis to do it, but it would be lovely if we could optimize learning for the learner. It just, there isn't any solid basis to do so
0: yet. <laughs> yeah, all right, next question. What is the technology that, that has surprised you by its application in learning design and development? So anything that's like, oh my gosh, that's, I would not have expected that. <laughs>
1: Uh, positively or negatively? either. <laughs> right. Yeah, I remember Second Life and now VR um, in that, you know, immersive environments, we could do such powerful learning in it. And then you end up seeing PowerPoint presentations in Second Life. And it's like, kill me now. What a waste of technology. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, I'm afraid that the same is happening in VR. I think AR is extremely cool. I think that the ability to annotate the world with hidden information, is, to me, one of the most fascinating opportunities. Um, we, it's still problematic, both of them, because we don't have standards, we don't have interoperability, but I think when we get that, um, I think there's gonna be some really interesting opportunities to meet individual interests and needs. Yeah. Awesome.
0: Okay. Next. And really then there's two questions left. This one's pretty easy. Next one's a little harder. Uh, where do you turn for inspiration? So you're a, a learning scientist. You are obviously reading a ton. I'm sure looking at tons of sources, mm-hmm. but where's your inspiration that you turn to?
1: I don't know why I find learning so interesting, but it once I started exploring it and applying it, so I guess I'm a geek um, and uh, I like shiny objects, but I like helping people and putting those together and saying, how can we use technology to help people achieve their goals better is the underlying, I guess, passion that drives me. And then, you know, how do we design, you know, learning engagement and design and understanding the underpinnings of those and applying those practically is is what inspires me. And who knows why, some traumatic experience is <laughs> <laughs> well
0: well we love it we're appreciative that you are, are such a learning geek it's 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 helped us uh, the industry i think just really level level up our abilities and what we're able to do so last Wait, last I'm... question for you what's a question you'd like to ask me as we wrap up today so you get to turn um, the tables right so how does
1: camtasia strike a balance between learning science and what the market wants i have talked with other vendors and they go, we only listen to what our customers want. We're not giving them what they need. And I would love to hear an answer a a bit more forward thinking than that.
0: Yeah. Well, I I hope I have a better answer. You know, obviously at any business, there's some element of listening to customers and and we love our customers and we try to listen (laughs) to you. However, I think there is a, a level of, we also know that many of our the users of Camtasia are trying to do something that's focused on learning. And so trying to make sure that we can provide them with the tools that will make that simple and allow them to make something that is effective, but is simple as well. They Like we have lots of great cool features, but understand helping them to understand that they don't have to do that. And I think that comes across in the fact that not only do we make a great product, we also try to do things like this, have have conversations about what is learning science. We talk about what is good design. We try to teach the principles that allow people to to hopefully do that. But at the end of the day, we are also trying to make a really great product that can do lots of things for a lot of different people. And so sometimes we probably fall down on making something that's good for learning science. Although, you know, teach correct principles and then let people govern themselves, as I say. Fair enough. Thank you. So we we try, we try. And hopefully everyone's listening to this and they say like, Oh, maybe I don't need to do all the fancy things. I just need to make sure it's focused. And, but then you got the marketer who does want to do fancy things. So, you know, always a balance. (laughs) Why you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Clark, thank you so much for joining me today. It's, it's always a pleasure to get to to, to listen to you and learn from you. And um, if anyone wanted to, 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 you know, connect with you, what, what are the key places they can find you and read more of your stuff?
1: um i am you know my blog posts appear on linkedin as well you can go to my blog learnthis.com. things that end up in books and presentations end up usually show up there first it's really helpful if you want need help sleeping at night great tool um (laughs) uh you know the the quinnovation.com is the way to reach me again linkedin i'm on twitter as at quinnovator as you mentioned at the beginning so most of the social media places Perfect.
0: Well, thank you once again, Clark. And we we always appreciate it. So guys, go check out everything that Clark is doing and listen to the things that he's got to say. And don't get sucked in by the snake oil you know, put that off. So just, we appreciate everybody tuning in every single week. We're grateful for our audience that listens on the podcast. And if you've got questions, thoughts, things that you would like to ask us or share with us, or things, guests that you would like to see, you can email us at thevisuallounge at techsmith.com or tag us on social media at techsmith.com. With that said, whatever you're doing, wherever you are, whether you're like making images, videos, creating training based on learning science, we hope you take a little time every week to level up and we'll see you next week. Thanks.